with it now being the Christmas season, uh, we're going to break into our series. Uh, so, God willing, uh, we will return to Mark's Gospel in the new year. And as the Lord leads, uh, both this morning and on Christmas uh, Day morning, I would like us to consider uh, the accounts of the birth of Jesus uh, as Matthew gives it. So, Gospel of Matthew, chapters 1 and 2. And I would like us to look this morning at the dark side of Christmas. I hope you don't mind that. Do you realise that the Christmas story has a dark side to it? In uh, Matthew chapter 2, we haven't got time to read the whole of it. We have the famous account of the wise men, or the magi, uh, coming uh, to... Uh, bring their gift to Jesus, being guided by uh, the star. And they uh, go first to Jerusalem, not Bethlehem, uh, because that's where King Herod uh, had his palace. And they ask him, where is the king of the Jews uh, going to be born? And they are directed to Bethlehem. Uh, but Herod, being uh, a wicked king, uh, realizes that there is competition now and uh, he wants uh, to uh, find where this newborn king is so that he can destroy him and we know don't we that an angel warns uh, Mary and Joseph about Herod's destruction and they flee to Egypt and Herod then orders uh, this terrible atrocity uh, he murders all uh, the newborn boys in the region uh, of Bethlehem and that is the dark side of Christmas this infanticide uh, which is one of the wickedest things recorded in the whole of the Bible and let's read the accounts uh, Verse 16 of Matthew 2. And as we read these verses, you will see why our reading was from the book of Jeremiah. Matthew 2, 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its district, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then, this is what we want to look at, was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. The Massacre of the Innocents. Have you seen the famous picture? Is it um, Giotti? I can't pronounce the name. Giotti? Uh, a well-known account uh, of Herod's soldiers uh, searching for the baby Jesus and uh, killing all those uh, young boys. And you can see the, the corpses of the infants at the bottom of the picture. A horrible, horrible scene the dark side of Christmas. And Matthew is being reminded here of Jeremiah's prophecy. Now, uh, Jeremiah 
uh, spoke of Rachel. Uh, you know who Rachel was? Do you know the connection between Rachel and Bethlehem? Rachel was one of Jacob's wives back in the book of Genesis. And Rachel, not far from Bethlehem, died giving birth to a son, Benjamin. Isn't that interesting? And Jacob uh, mourned for her in Bethlehem. So for Jacob, Bethlehem was synonymous with grief and mourning. And then Jeremiah, the verses we read, many, many centuries later, he uh, used Rachel's mourning, not Jacob's mourning, but Rachel weeping, when the children of Israel, not far from Bethlehem and Jerusalem, about five miles north, from a place called Ramah, which was a refugee camp, right? It was a transit camp where the Babylonians took the children of Israel as prisoners and deported them a thousand miles to Babylon. And the children of Israel, especially the mothers, they were wailing in Ramah because either they'd been separated from their children or they had seen their children getting killed. And it was a place of weeping. And Jeremiah, who still lived in Jerusalem, could hear the crying in Ramah five miles away. And he wrote in his prophecy what Matthew quotes, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping and great mourning. And Matthew and then Jeremiah is reminded of Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel weeping. That's a picture of the mothers of Bethlehem when Jesus was born. Christmas wasn't a happy occasion to them. They were so full of tears they could not be comforted. Rachel doesn't just stand for the mothers of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. It actually stands for the church of Jesus Christ. Are you weeping this Christmas? Even though we can get together, are you sad uh, because of the situation we are in, or maybe other things are causing you to be heavy. And of course, Rachel can stand for the whole world, can't it? Somebody described this world as a veil of tears. Now, I don't want to depress you <laughs> at Christmas, but life is a struggle, isn't it? And maybe this Christmas time, we are especially reminded of that. We're not going to be able to celebrate Christmas as we normally do. We're not going to be able to gather together as families. So it is going to be, maybe for a number of people, a time of weeping, like Rachel. Now I'm going to show my age here. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel, the pop duo back in the late 60s, they sang a rendition of Silent Night. Are you familiar with this rendition? They got the beautiful lyrics and music of Silent Night starting, and you think, ah, this is going to be the famous carol. And then, in the background, and it gets louder and louder as uh, the carol progresses, you hear headlines from the 7 o'clock news. So they called the song Silent Night, 7 o'clock news. And it's early 70s, I think, because the Vietnam War is one of the headlines. And you've got the beautiful 
uh, lyrics of Silent Nights on the one hand, and then the contrast between the horrible things that are happening in the world. And it's a bit like that when we come to Matthew chapter 2. And maybe it's a bit like that for you and me this Christmas. We've got this good news about the birth of Jesus Christ. Christ, the Saviour, is born. And yet, all around it, the context is weeping and heartache and depression. And I find no uh, greater uh, uh, passage for this Christmas than this passage here, Rachel weeping, Rachel weeping. And you know what God is saying to us this Christmas? Wipe your tears. Uh, we're not going to be able to look at all the verses I read in Jeremiah, but if you look at verse 17 of Jeremiah 31, Rachel, wipe your tears. There is hope in your future. There is hope for your future. Isn't that good news? Uh, Matthew Henry says, we are not forbidden to mourn. It would be unnatural if we were having difficulties for us not to feel down. It would be unnatural if this year we didn't feel dejected at Christmas, right? Don't be super spiritual and say, oh, we are not meant to feel down. That is utter unbiblical nonsense, if I can put it like that. <laughs> it's natural. It's natural. Matthew Henry, though, goes on to say, we are not forbidden to mourn, but we must not suffer our sorrow to run into an extreme. Though we mourn, we must not murmur. That's good, isn't it? Though we mourn, we must not murmur. And Calvin said, He's great, Calvin. Rachel's tears were not in vain, and they were not going to be forever. Listen, this is what God is saying to us this morning. Rachel, whether it's the church, whether it's just society at large, whether it's you just as a person, Rachel, dry your tears. Rachel, dry your tears. God isn't offering us some quick fix. God isn't offering us the removal of our problems, but what he is offering is a hope for the future. What does the carol, O little town of Bethlehem, say? The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. So without further ado, I've just got three reasons to give why we're to wipe our tears away this morning. Yes, cry. Yes, mourn. It's natural. But there is a reason to hope and rejoice as well. Let me go through them. Why was Rachel to dry her tears. I'll refer more to Jeremiah 31, I think, than Matthew 2. My first reason is this. There's going to be a return. Isn't that good news? Here is Jeremiah hearing the cries from Ramah five miles away. The wailing was so great, he could hear it five miles away. And the children of Israel are being taken captive by the superpower, the Babylonians. There was no hope they thought. But Jeremiah says, oh yes there is. You will come back. You will return to the land. If you've got a Bible, look at verses 16 and 17 of Jeremiah 31. Verses 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and you shall come back 
from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future. Your children shall come back to their own border. What's the message of Christmas? It is this. It is coming back home. Now, I hope that doesn't add salt on our wounds this year, because many of us won't be able to go home for Christmas. But when we think of the gospel, the good news, it's all about coming home. Uh, The part of the New Testament that's most similar to Jeremiah 31 is the parable that Jesus gave of the prodigal son. We're all familiar with it, I'm sure. Uh, It speaks of the wayward son who uh, was given his inheritance and he wasted it all living in a far country and uh, he just completely rebelled against his loving father and it was when he was at his farthest from home when he was so poor because he'd wasted all of his money that he was looking after the pigs and eating the food that the pigs were given, it was then that he realized, I'm in a mess, and I want to go home, you know? And this is what Jeremiah uh, pictures here. Uh, He speaks not of the prodigal, but of Ephraim. Ephraim. Ephraim is a picture of Israel. And you've got this illustration of Ephraim. Like the prodigal, coming to his senses and going home, going home. Uh, If you look at, I know I'm giving you too many verses, uh, but if you look at uh, verse 19, you have Ephraim speaking here. Uh, You know, when we talk about returning home, returning to God, It is 100% of God, and it's 100% of us. You can't say, because God is sovereign, I can't do anything. Look at the way Ephraim speaks. He says, verse 18 at the end, Restore me, turn me, and I will return. So he's saying, oh God, I'm in a mess. I can't get out of this mess. You must do it. And at the same time, he's saying, Lord, turn me and I shall turn. There's a willingness, you see, in Ephraim's hearts. And uh, if you look at verse 19, uh, the word turning and repent is used several times. I think, uh, um, if I can get the number right, about six or seven times, to repent is to turn. It's exactly the same. Uh, Surely, verse 19, after my turning, I turned, I repented. And after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. Isn't that a lovely picture? Uh, What do you do when you strike yourself on the thigh? You say, I've been stupid. Why didn't I see it? That's what happens when you come to your right mind. Think of the prodigal uh, enjoying pig's will and realizing, I'm a fool. When I was at my father's house, Before he gave me my inheritance, I would be having much better meals than this. His servants would be having much nicer meals. And you can imagine him striking his thigh, saying, what a fool I've been. And that's what Ephraim is doing here. How stupid I've been. That's what you do when you become a Christian, isn't that right? 
You may not actually strike yourself on your thigh, but you're coming into the light. Conversion isn't a leap into the dark. You're actually more in your right mind than you ever were. Coming home. And their parents here this morning or maybe tuning in. And this year, your children who are far away are not going to be coming home. But your children may be far away spiritually as well. And you long for them to come home, to come to Jesus Christ. And that can happen even if they don't come home physically for Christmas. Wouldn't that make your Christmas? To have a gathering at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Can I ask you, have you come home? Have you come to your right mind? When you turn, you see sin for what it is. Now, for somebody like me, it wasn't outrageous things. When I was a student, that's when I was converted. I didn't get drunk. I didn't read things I shouldn't read, etc. But I was still a sinner. I was still a vile sinner. And that's what I saw when God first convicted me. And I saw that my sin was unbelief. And I realized I needed Jesus Christ. Have you realized you need him? I'm the sinner that Jesus came to die. And you decide you've had enough of sin. You want to come to God. Maybe if he's your parent's savior, you will say, maybe I grew up in the things of God and I've gone away from him. But now I realize I've got to come back home. What a lovely, lovely picture. Coming home. Um, let me use this illustration if it helps. Uh, a few years ago, uh, I remember going on a Christmas walk. Uh, and it was somewhere in West Wales. And we were climbing a mountain. And by the time we got to the top, it was all in thick fog. And we all got lost. We all lost one another. And I went down what I thought was the right side of the mountain. Now, this is what I mean by being lost, right? I thought I was just a bit astray. And once I was out of the fog, I would see where the right path was. But the problem was this. When I got out of the fog, I realized I'd come down, not just a little bit off the beaten track, but I was on the wrong side of the mountain. You see, that's what it's like when we are spiritually lost. It's not that we've just gone a little bit off the path and a little bit of uh, turning over a new leaf, a little bit of uh, religion, a little bit of good works, that that will somehow bring us back. Oh no, we're on the wrong side of the mountain and we can't get ourselves back. God has to do it. That's what it means. We're on the wrong side. You know what I had to do? I had to call for help. Thank God for mobile phones. And thank God for signals as well. I had to call for help. And have you come to the place where you have to pray? That's what it means to become a Christian. How do I know if I've turned? You know if you've turned, if you've cried for help. That's how Saul of Tarsus proved himself to be a Christian. Behold, he's praying. What do you do? You say... This is a well-known song. 
we leave behind all the pain of alienation. We bring the lies we believed out into the light, not a leap into the dark. I turn away from the springs that cannot hold water, all the things I've depended on, broken existence. And I turn. I'm coming home. Are you coming home this Christmas? Coming home to Jesus Christ. So that's one reason. Uh, I've really got to hurry up here. Uh, the second reason is not just a return. There is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. Look at the way that God speaks here. Uh, Ephraim is the wayward son, and he spat in the face of God, his father. And look how God speaks to him. God isn't in a huff with Ephraim. We're in a huff with one another so much of the time, aren't we? We say something, and it's taken the wrong way, uh, and we're so pathetic in that sense. But God isn't like that with us. Oh, how much God could be in a huff with us. How much case God would have to abandon us completely. But he's not like that. Verse 20 of Jeremiah 31. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a darling child? For though I spoke against him, what's God's gut reaction? What's his heart response? I earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. That's what our God is like. Uh, his desires toward his wayward children are not hard. He yearns that we return to him. Isn't this an inducement to turn to God? You know, some people think of turning to Christ as doing penance. They, they think of repentance as, uh, I don't know, as giving yourself a hard time. That's not repentance in the Bible. Repentance is, yes, mourning for our sin, but it's surely also being drawn to a gracious God. Uh, we sing, don't we, sometimes, Come, let us to the Lord our God with contrite hearts return, for our God is gracious. He's gracious, nor will he leave the desolate to mourn. The grace, the mercy of God. And it's not just a heart thing with God. God has done something about it. This is what we're remembering at Christmas. Uh, look at verse 11 of Jeremiah 31. What has God done? Uh, Israel, Ephraim in particular, the wayward son, you and I, we're not going to turn in and of ourselves. Our sins are against us. God is holy. He must punish sin. Even if God was to accept us, he couldn't just wink at our sins. He must do something about our sins. And this is the good news of Christmas. This is the Christmas story. Christmas can't be cancelled because what God has done in Jesus Christ stands forever. Uh, verse 11, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Two big theological terms there. The second one, ransomed. What is that? Oh, it's about freeing those who are in captivity. Think of people kidnapped and uh, a price is demanded so that they are set free. The ransom is that. And that's what God has done in Jesus Christ. A ransom uh, has been paid so that you and I can be freed. And then Redeemer, it's a little bit more personal Redeemer. Redeemer is a person that frees us. 
And a redeemer, usually in the Old Testament, had to be a next of kin, what we call a kinsman redeemer. And this is the good news of Christmas. God can free us from the tyranny of sin. It's not Babylon who is the real enemy. It's sin. And we can't deal with it. We're in a mess. We can't set ourselves free. But God says, I will pay the ransom. A redeemer will come. That's what we're remembering at Christmas. There is a redeemer. Jesus. God's own son. And you know what? He's next of kin, isn't he? Uh, it comes out um, beautifully in verse 22 of Jeremiah 31. Verse 22. It says this uh, right at the end. For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. Jeremiah can't see it as clearly as we can. But he sees in the future something completely new is about to happen. That's what happened 2,000 years ago. What is it? A woman shall encompass a man. And the word in the Hebrew for man there is the same word as mighty God in the promise of Isaiah, for unto us a child is born. Now, this is the message of Christmas. The Redeemer, Jesus Christ, was born in Bethlehem. Who's the Redeemer? He is the mighty God. How did he become a man? He's encompassed by a woman. And that doesn't just refer to the God incarnate being held in Mary's arms. That's God encompassed by a woman, isn't it? It goes even further back to God in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity. Isn't that amazing? The Redeemer, pleased as man, with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. And what did he come to do? He came to die. And on that cross, his blood, the divine blood, the blood of a perfect man, the blood that has infinite cleansing qualities is sprinkled or shed even so that our sins can be pardoned. That's the Christmas message, my friend. That's never going to be cancelled. <laughs> Isn't it a wonderful message? Uh, we sang, Child in the manger, infant of Mary, outcast and stranger, Lord of all. Child who inherits all our transgressions, all our demerits, all our sins on him fall. Bethlehem was a place of mourning for Jacob. Bethlehem was a place of mourning for these mothers. But Bethlehem is a place of birth, the birth of the Redeemer. Bethlehem is a place of hope for you and me. Bethlehem is a place, yes, where we die, in a sense. You die when you come to Christ. You die to the old person. And a new life begins. Now, one last reason, and I'll really be quick here. God doesn't just promise to return us 
to him. He doesn't just promise to forgive us all our sins in Jesus Christ, but he promises to guide us to our heavenly home. You know, when we come to Christ, God doesn't just leave us there. You sometimes get the impression in Christianity uh, that uh, it is all of grace to be saved, <laughs> but then once you're saved, it's somehow up to you. That's utter, uh, utter nonsense. God doesn't just bring us to Christ. He then guides us through this world, which is a veil of tears, all the way to our heavenly home. Uh, you know, it's like me on that mountain, not just being on my own, but having a guide, a proper guide, will know all the paths. He will know where to go, even in mist. Uh, he has been on them so often. And isn't that what Jesus Christ is like? He knows the way he taketh. And I will walk with him. Oh, look at the lovely promises in Jeremiah 31. I wish we had more time. Verse 10, uh, he who scattered Israel with, will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. Uh, or a little uh, later da uh, down, uh, we're told about setting up uh, signposts, make landmarks. Verse 21, uh, God leading us uh, all the way. And then we've got, got that lovely promise of him leading us. Uh, by uh, the rivers of living water. We just haven't got time to look at them. But isn't that true, Christian? If you're a Christian this morning, can't you say amen in your heart to that? Jesus Christ has kept you, even through thick and thin. Uh, there have been still waters, haven't there? There have been uh, green pastures. But even when you've gone through the valley of the shadow, hasn't he still been with you? And hasn't his presence been more real to you then? All the way, all the way, my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? And you know what? God allowed his people to be taken captive to Babylon. And they didn't have a single ticket. They had a return ticket. God made sure they had a return ticket. Yes, it was 70 long years they were going to be captive there. But one day, in God's perfect timing, they were going to come back. My friend, God, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but Christ on that cross bought the tickets for us to go to heaven. And it is a cliche, but it's a wonderful illustration as well. He's bought the ticket, and he is going to take us there, you know? We are one day going to stand before him, whatever happens in the meantime. And that is the Christian life. It's me and the Lord. When I walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on my way. One of the people who's gone to glory, uh, Dillis Price, she spoke to me on the phone about a week before she died. And she just said, it's wonderful, isn't it? It's just me and the Lord. That's Christianity for you. Me and Jesus Christ, he walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. Wonderful. And when we weep, and there will be times when we will weep, Bible college doesn't teach you tears. The school of Christ does. And maybe you are weeping this morning. Listen. Sorrow may last for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And even if we have to weep for a long time, 
We are going to a place, home sweet home, where he will wipe every tear from our eye. Doesn't it make you want to go home? Not just home to Christ, but home to heaven where you will see him face to face. And you know what? If you're a Christian this morning, you're nearer that heavenly home than when you first believed. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful? A day's march nearer home. And if you're not a Christian, you're nearer now to eternal destruction. Well, I've got to finish there. We want to come to the Lord's table to remember the ransom paid by our Redeemer. I read a song a while ago. I want to complete it. Uh, let me just read one commentator first. Sometimes it is difficult to believe such promises as these, especially when life is hard and our sufferings seem great. There may even be times when we, like Rachel, refuse to be comforted, but God's promises are true, and the believer's suffering will not last forever. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. That day will come. So what do we do? We leave behind all the pain of alienation. We bring the lies we believed out into the light. The love we were made to feel. Oh, Rachel, dry your tears. Your hope, it will rise. I turn away from the springs that cannot hold water. I will be sustained by the true river of life. You make my eyes to see. You are upholding me all through the nights. Set up a sign or a post to give us direction. Lead us by good, clear paths. Show us the way, our tired and restless ways. Help and defend us. Please stay by my side. Until the trumpet sounds, until our home comes down, children of Zion, raise up the sound until our home comes down. Your deliverance is coming for us while we wait in the wilderness. You walk before us. Give us grace. Rachel, is that you? Rachel, God is saying, dry your tears. For his name's sake.